one of the most memorable events of recent times is the public funeral, if you might recall, of Diana, Princess of Wales. I now realize when I say you might recall, some of you have perhaps not born, perhaps some of you. This is September 1997. Of course, some of you were not there. 6th of September 1997. 2.5, I was in this country, and 2.5 billion people around the world watched the funeral of Princess Di on television. And what a funeral it was. My older brother actually went there to see it. You know, he was, he's a bit of a royal, I guess, so he went there for the, for the funeral as well. I don't think he was allowed in the, the abbey, but he, he watched the procession of the cortege. Diana was called the people's princess. Why was Princess Di so popular? Now, some skeptics of royals might say it must be the, uh, the scandals and, uh, and the sort of uh, girl power attitude that she had. Well, <clears throat> I think the reason is a human touch, actually. If you remember, Diana was regal and elegant, and yet she was very willing to touch and hold. We saw the people who were so marginalized in society. We saw Diana holding dirty and uh, poor children in her arms. You know, when she went to Angola, I think, or the Congo, to do those uh, landmine things to, to look at those issues. You saw her with these amazing photographs of her reaching out to these people. And we often saw Di Princess Diana um, touching HIV AIDS patients. Uh, Diana physically touching these people you see who are marginalized in society touched all of us emotionally. As we saw her, she communicated something of love, didn't she, in that, those touch. Uh, and it left those she touched feeling uh, valued and loved was amazing, actually, to watch. I think it made them feel human again, as we said last week. When love touches us, we, it makes us almost feel human again. Diana's touch warmed our hearts because, you see, there is an inner longing in all of us for someone with such power and grace who sh to, 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 to touch our lives with, with love, isn't it? That's why we warm to her. It's that inner longing in our hearts. Uh, you see, the reason we long for these things is because, you see, sin has ravaged us. When God created us in the Garden of Eden, we, we had everything we needed. We had his touch, his love, his care. But sin entered our world. It ravaged us. It cut us off from the loving touch of God. And so what we are left with as individuals, actually, is a longing for someone powerful and yet compassionate to touch us in the same way that God once touched us. And so we look to people like Diana and other figures, even Mother Teresa, if you might remember some of you um, who Mother Teresa was, we look to such figures to heal and touch us, to inspire us. And yet, of course, 1997 reminds us Diana died, right? She died. And our death reminds us that in the end, all human love, all human touches, no matter how deep, never lasts. No human touch can truly heal your broken life. No human love can. That's what St. Augustine said, spoke to God, you know, cried out to God and said, what did he say? You have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, in God. The good news of the Bible, you see, is that we do not look, need to look anywhere else for someone to touch us. 
We can come to God and experience His touch of life. To be part of His work, so to speak. To receive His love, I mean to say. And the Bible says God has come to us in Jesus to lovingly touch our lives. It's amazing. It's so exciting. It's so comforting. You know, there is a God who reaches out to us. We are currently in Mark. Uh, throughout Mark, we see Jesus intruding in the lives of people, isn't it? He's touching lepers here. He's touching the lamb. He's touching the demoniac there. He's touching people who no one wants to touch. He's giving them physical healing. But we know as we've gone through Mark, it's much more than that. It's much more than that. As he touches them physically, he's communicating, he's come to give spiritual life that God offers. And Jesus is here today offering to all of us this tangible hope of life with God. And life for whatever desperate situation you're in today. So my task this morning as we continue our journey in Mark is just to encourage you to surrender to Jesus. To come to Jesus and receive that touch. Now, for some of you, that means literally surrendering to him and, and perhaps they're really coming to faith in Christ. For others, it's that desperate situation you're in. And realizing that Jesus speaks life to the, your desperate situation. And coming to him as Jairus and the, the little girl in today's passage, experience, experiencing that touch of Jesus. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Uh, verse 21. Hopefully you have an outline there that says the touch of Jesus. And there are just three things I want to share to walk us through this passage. We looked at parts of this passage, uh, as you know, um, last Sunday evening. But uh, we're going to walk through all of it now. Because I said this is a mac and sandwich. And it's a delicious mac and sandwich. We've had a first bite of this sandwich. Now we're going to look at the whole, uh, the whole thing. The first thing I just want to share from this is that Jesus does want to touch our lives. Jesus wants to touch our lives. Look at with me at verse 21 there. Jesus, as you know, has left the garrisons on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he has come now to the western side, probably around the town of Capernaum, where his headquarters for his ministry, so to speak, is. And Jesus, we're told in verse 21 there, is, that, is by the shore. Um, there and why is by the shore probably teaching an important religious leader uh, called Jairus comes to Jesus. Let's read verse 21 to verse 22. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell. At his feet. Let's just pause there. Let us freeze that scene there by the Sea of Galilee. What are we seeing now? Well, we're seeing, first of all, a man devoted to God. His name is Jairus. He's wealthy and he's actually very respected in society. He would be equivalent to a mayor today. So he must be quite rich. And yet we see this man is falling at the feet of Jesus. A nobody, a carpenter from Nazareth. We're going to hear about Nazareth this evening. He's come from that town, a town of nobody. These two people are worlds apart. So immediately as we're looking at this scene, we're thinking to ourselves, Jairus must be desperate to do this. What would cause 
a very rich man. What would force him to his knees like this? Well, Mark tells us. Let's read verse 22 and verse 23. Verse 22, again, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and implored him, literally begged him, earnestly saying, My little girl, my little daughter, is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well, and live. Now some of you here know what it feels like when your child is, becomes sick. Some of you do, you be, your mothers and fathers. Everything comes to a stop. Nothing matters to you anymore. You actually yourself become sick with worry. Right? Now imagine your daughter is not just sick with any disease like a cold that you can take at the GP for. Imagine she's sick with something like HIV AIDS. Somehow she's contracted it. And you know there is no cure for this. How would you feel? Well, that is how, whatever you're feeling at that point, that is how Jairus is feeling right now. His little girl is dying. He has tried everything. And now he's dialing his last 999 not to all doctors he has tried to. Now he's heard about this man, Jesus, and he's dialing his 99 to Jesus. He believes Jesus is his only hope to heal his little girl. But there's a problem here. Jesus has come to teach. He hasn't really come to heal. His number one job description is to teach. And he's busy with him teaching now. So it's not obvious Jesus should even help. Why should he help? So as Jairus came to him, we're asking ourselves, what will Jesus do? Will he drop everything that Jairus wants to ask him to do and run to his house? Or will Jesus say, look, you know what? Actually, this is my number one job. This is my job description. It's to teach. That's why I've come. What will Jesus do? Well, we know, don't we, from verse 24. He drops everything. And verse 24 tells us, and he went with him. We just paused there. We see that Jesus drops everything for this man. Why is he doing it? Because this is how Jesus is like. Jesus has a heart that moves towards those who are hurting. I, I, Jesus is always looking for trouble. That could be interpreted something else, right? But he's always moving towards the hurting, the deeply troubled people. Are you hurt? Are you in pain? Are you struggling this morning? Is there a problem that no one else can solve? Jesus is after that. He always moves to hopeless causes. Have you been praying for something? Have you become discouraged perhaps because nothing is happening in your life? Are you a follower of Jesus and you feel Jesus somehow doesn't care? Are you doubting Jesus really feels the pain of your situation? Beloved, Jesus has not changed he has not changed. And even now, his heart beats love for you. As it's beating for Jairus' daughter. And he wants you to draw near to him like Jairus is doing. Jesus is our heavenly doctor who never refuses to, to answer our call for help. You know the JP won't refuse you. You know that, right? I mean, they'll tell you to queue up, but they won't refuse you. 
But Jesus is all love, all compassion, all grace. He longs to touch the broken hearts. He won't refuse you. He's ready for you to go to him. But here is what you need to remember. It must be on his terms. It must be on his terms. The point number one, Jesus wants to touch our lives. But there is a bad touch. He wants to touch your life. But it must be on his terms. That's our second point. Let's return to this. Jesus, we see, has answered Jairus' call. Let's see this. And we, we imagine now that, okay, this is an ancient case. So what is happening here? He's answered the call. And they must be passing to Jairus' house. They must be going there. This is, this is agent. So we can imagine they are walking very fast. And as always, the crowd is not far behind. It's, the crowd is there. And Mark, t- I, I, I think we should imagine this situation that if it was today, it would be a bit like this. Jesus is in the 9-9 ambulance, right? And he's rushing towards Jairus' house. And there's a whole lot of cars in the crowd, right? They are following him behind the 99 ambulance because they want to see what's happening. So they are following him along. That's what Mark tells us. And Mark tells us that within this crowd that is following Jesus now to Jairus' house, so to speak, there is a woman there who is also dying. We met her last Sunday. She also wants Jesus' help. She wants it desperately. She wants help from him. Let's read verse 24 to verse 27. And he went with him, Jairus. And a great crowd followed him, verse 24, and thronged about him. They are following behind him, their cars, so to speak. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but grew, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. We noted last Sunday evening that this woman who's, who, who has touched Jesus now is religiously and socially unclean. There, we can't, I, I won't repeat the sermon, so some of you are thankful for that. But essentially, we said that she's ceremonially and religiously socially unclean. There are things in her life that she cannot do because of her condition. And, and I said that having this disease is like having a nasty criminal record. It's like on your CRB file, right, having a nasty criminal record on it. Okay? So basically, you cannot work as a result of this condition. You can't certainly live in certain places. We know there are some people in society who, through their crime, they are restricted from living, going near children, or doing other things. It's a bit like that, what she has. She cannot um, have family. We said that perhaps she has never been got married because of this issue. If she had got married, she had become divorced. Okay? This is her condition. She is Desperate, lonely, fearful, and broke. Because all the money she had, she spent it on the doctors. Everyone has failed her. But she believes Jesus is different. She believes his touch can heal her. Look at that. Verse 28 of Mark chapter 5. Verse 28 says this. For she said, even if I touch, if I touch, even his garments, I'll be made well. 
And immediately, verse 29, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, we are told, immediately turned about in the crowd. We just pause there just immediately there. The woman has somehow managed to get through the crowd, right? And she's now healed, right? And Jesus has sensed power go out from him. And I said that there was like an ambulance going to Jairus' house, so we can imagine he has now stopped the ambulance, right? No longer going to Jairus' house. He stopped it in the middle of human traffic to now attend to a new case. He wants to see this woman who he has healed. Let's read on verse 30. And, in, and immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Verse 31. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. He's still looking. And I said, by the way, verse 32, last Sunday evening, I said, he kept on looking. That's how you should understand that. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Just think about what's just happened. This is shocking, isn't it? Jesus, by the way, is still talking to the woman just now. It is shocking to me when I look at this because Jesus does not have to stop his 99 ambulance van to attend to this woman. He's actually already healed her. And secondly, he does not need to hear the whole truth. I hope you pick that up from verse 34. That from verse 34, uh, verse 33. She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. How long is this taking to hear her whole truth? And I, I don't know, but she must have quite a story of what has happened to her. So much pain to bring out before Jesus, to share with him. He doesn't have to do any of this. As I thought about that, I thought, we should note here clearly that Jesus has time for everyone who comes to him. Jesus never separates his power from his love. And I'm so encouraged as I go through Mark. I said, you know, I'm loving Jesus in Mark. Because I see that Jesus has a time for those who are especially deeply hurting. They're forgotten in society. And beloved, if you are in that situation right now, Jesus has time for you right now. Jesus is saying to you this morning, I am not too busy for that problem you are currently facing. Come and tell me the whole story. I am listening. Jesus has time for you. But here is the question for you this morning. If you profess faith in Jesus, do you have time for Jesus? Do you have time to cry out to him? Beloved, Jesus is waiting for you. He's not just waiting for you to come to him. He's on tender hooks. Tender hooks. 
He's searching for you to come. He's waiting. He's waiting for you to approach him in prayer, to speak to him, to tell him the whole story. That's what we see here. He's out there searching for this woman in the crowd. He knows she belongs to him and he wants to hear her. And beloved, if you know Jesus, if you have come to faith in him, he wants you to approach him, to step forward like this lady. And if you don't know Jesus, this is his heart towards you. He's saying to you this morning, I have more to do for you, my son. Come out and talk to me in prayer. I mean well for you. I am waiting. Will you go to him now? Will you approach Jesus now? And above all, are you like, like Jairus? Are you willing to wait? Because Jairus is waiting. That is what Jesus really is asking Jairus here. Because I want you to imagine there are two people here. There's the woman and there's Jairus. To the woman, Jesus shows just how much he has time for. But you may be in the Jairus situation. Where you've asked Jesus to do something. And you are waiting for him to act. And the question he's asking for you is not, are you coming to me in prayer? But are you waiting for me? For me to act in your life to change things. Because how is Jairus feeling right? I think his stomach is churning. Your daughter is dying. That's a terrible, that's a difficult situation. And he knows Jesus can do something about it. But Jesus is not doing it. He's talking to someone else. I think he stopped the van, the 99 van. Instead of going to, the, to attend to the situation, he's attending to someone else. I think Jairus, humanly speaking, must be thinking, hang on a minute. This is negligent. This should not happen. And you know what? He's not alone if he's thinking that because the disciples think that. We've already seen that. And the part tells us that it is Peter who is irritated by what's happened and raises question of Jesus. He has to be. Doesn't he? But friends, Jesus will not be rushed. He will not be rushed with your situation. He does things on his terms. He has to teach this truth to Jairus. He has to teach it to me. He has to teach it to you. You've got to get it. He does things on his terms. And for Jairus, the terms have just got worse. It's like he has signed one contract with the baby dying. Now the baby's dead. Look at verse 35. And while he was still speaking, that is Jesus. He's still chatting. There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher? Why trouble the teacher? any further. We can have a lot of sermon on that, can't we? Their attitude. But the point I want you to see here is that his daughter has died. And can you imagine Jairus' face right now? Shock, definitely. Anger, perhaps. Secret disappointment at Jesus. And what makes it worse is that the messengers are saying to Jairus, you have wasted your time to come to this guy. You know, you could have been enjoying the professional mourners at home as they used to have at this time. They are sort of partly criticizing Jairus and partly availed criticism of Jesus. Why are you doing this? You should have, if you had come early with all your power, you could have done something about it. It is painful, isn't it? Have you ever been criticized in public by someone? At work, perhaps, you are in a meeting. That's happened to me at work. 
you're in a meeting and you just, your boss, your deputy director or something, or your director just all of a sudden <laughs> says, ah, Chola, this model should look like this, should look like that. What is going on here? It is painful when people doubt our ability in public. When they shame us in front of others as Jesus is being shamed here by these people. It is painful because we see it on next factor, don't we? And apprentice. We see people criticize there and they break down in tears. Their world collapses on national television. And frankly, as I looked at this situation, I thought, I would understand if Jesus now just turns around and says, look, Jairus, if your people are going to be behaving like this, I'm coming to your house, I'm taking all the time to teach, and if they're going to behave like this, if this is how you run your household, frankly, I'm out of here. I don't know how you anything. I would understand if, this is, if Jesus reacts like this here. Because frankly, he's doing this for, well, zero. He's doing him a favor. He's doing the household a favor. I think I probably would react like that. But thank God Jesus is not like us. Jesus is perfect all the way. And that is why you and I need him. Desperately need him. And listen to the loving words of Jesus in verse 36. But over here in the original language it says ignoring even. He's actually ignoring them. He's overhearing and ignoring but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. I imagine him whispering to him, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus is saying to Jairus, I have got this. I will make your daughter well. But Jairus, you must trust me to do this my way and my time. I will help you, but you must trust me to do it my way and my time. And as I think about what's happening here when he says, do not fear, only believe. Accept me to do things on you, on my, my terms. I think this is the most difficult thing for many of us in churches to accept. Because Jesus is asking you here this morning to have a faith in him based on his terms, not your terms. True faith in Jesus is unconditional surrender. It says, I am giving up control of my life, what you want to do with it, and when you want to do with it. I will now live on your terms, not mine. This is the picture of faith. True faith says to Jesus, Lord, even before you ask the question, the answer is yes. Whatever you need, anywhere, anytime, anywhere you want to do it, my answer is yes. This is the faith we see in the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus. It is what we see in the woman Jesus healed who comes to Jesus and falls before him. It is what we are seeing in Jairus now. They are not depending on anything else. They have Jesus as Savior and they have him as Lord. The two cannot be separated. You either take him as Savior and Lord or you don't have him as a Savior at all. They are not depending on anything else except in Jesus alone. And they are doing this at any cost. Now I know we are always growing in surrendering to Jesus. We always are. But beloved, true conversion cannot, listen to me, 
true conversion cannot happen without truly surrendering to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Period. It can happen without that. And the application here is simple. Does this describe your faith in Jesus? As you go through Mark, we want to get to heaven, don't we? All of us, we do. I, I pray, I hope. And actually, if we go through Mark, we should be asking, is this my faith? Am I genuinely converted? Do I have the faith of Jairus? Lord, is it, am I genuinely converted like this woman here? Does this describe your faith? Have you surrendered to Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Or if you have not, you are not a true follower of Jesus. Do not deceive yourself. Truly turn to Jesus. Surrender to him and he will give you a new life. That is the third truth we learn here, isn't it? So truth number one, Jesus wants to touch our lives. Secondly, but it must be on his terms and his terms only. He's not signing your contract, you're signing his. How should we respond? Well, we must come to Jesus for him to touch us. The touch of Jesus gives new life. That's the final point. So let's go back to this. The plot thickens, doesn't it? The little girl is dead. But Jesus is saying nothing has changed. Okay. It is still plan A. It's a bit like the Brexit stuff at the moment. Nothing has changed. It's still plan A. But he decides to tweak the team, okay, just a little bit. He reduces the 9-9 team. There are too many of us going to this house, in, 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 following me behind. Look, I just want a few people to come along with me. Let's read verse 37 to verse 38. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion People weeping and wailing loudly. So Jesus has come here, and but I just want to point out, uh, he has found professional mourners like they have in Ghana. At this time, they have professional mourners, people you hire to help you grieve, help you cry along for your deceased. And the richer you are, of course, the more perhaps you can amass, as they do in Ghana, right? Uh, we've, we've read about those. So this is what's happened. These are actually professional mourners. It's not obvious to you, but they are. They've been... Some of them have been hired. And Jesus has come, he's found them. They're in full swing at the funeral. But what Jesus says next upsets them. They're not very happy. Let's read on verse 39 to verse 40. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And then verse 40 tells us, And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. We just paused there. Because I thought about this scene, what's happening here, you see. Uh, uh, Jesus has come. And to them, the people who are there, Jesus is sounding like a madman. Because Jesus is saying the child is asleep. They are saying, no, what are you talking about? You must be mad. The child is dead. They have been to enough funerals. They have been paid enough to cry at funerals to know what a dead person looks like. In fact, Jesus is saying you should be crying, you should be being paid, perhaps. <laughs> but no, but what Jesus means, Jesus is not mad and is not using a metaphor either. The child is dead. But what Jesus is doing is, is redefining death. This is a redefinition of death. Jesus is saying because he has come, death has lost its sting. 
Because Jesus has come, death is something now, if you are in Jesus, you can wake up from. It's like sleep. Jesus is now the Lord of life. And he shows them what it means. Let's read on uh, what he means by this. Uh, let's read on verse 40. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by hand, verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, this is Aramaic, which means, little girl, I said to you, Arise. I don't know. Have you ever, has any of you ever touched a dead body before? I don't know if you've ever touched a dead body before. Uh, I know some of you have, but, or maybe touch somebody who's just on the point of death. You've been called in and you know they're about to die. There are only a few minutes left. And have you ever experienced that? How did you feel if you have? I've experienced it, and in fact, I experienced it last year when Sister Dorothy was dying. I had to go in just literally half an hour or so before she, she died. You feel so helpless when you are there. There's nothing like it. You, you feel literally so helpless. You stare at this person. You are helpless not only because of their condition, you can't help them. You're breaking down, you're praying to God. But you are helpless because you see yourself in them. You see, this is me, perhaps, anytime. One day, I'm going to be like this. You feel so helpless at death. You realize death is something that you can't overcome. And when you are there, you never think that your touch will raise them up. You're just helpless. You're not going there to touch them because you feel, somehow, Lord, today, please help me. That thing is there. You don't feel like that. You're just helpless. But Jesus feels differently. Jesus isn't going to this little girl helpless. What I imagine happening here is that Jesus has entered and he's going by a bedside. He's probably kneeling and then he holds her by the hand. Then he gently speaks to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I said to you, arise. And with that amazing tenderness of the Nazarene, he lifts her up, you know, he holds her hand and she gets up and starts walking. Verse 42 says this, and immediately the girl got up after Jesus spoke to her and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, 12 short years, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And verse 43 says, And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give us something to eat. We can say a lot there, but the thing I just want you to understand here is that the powerful touch of Jesus has given her new life. And what Jesus has done for her here is not just for her benefit, it's for your benefit, it's for my benefit, it's for every ben- the benefit of everyone who comes to faith in Jesus. Because you see, Jesus does two things here, I want you to know. Two things Jesus does here. You've got to note this. First of all, he touches a dead girl. He's not allowed to do that. Touching a dead body in Leviticus makes a person unclean. And we know that uncleanness was meant to symbolize that deeper spiritual uncleanness of sin and death that all human beings have before God. So by Jesus going to touch this little girl, he's identifying with her. He's taking on our sin. He's taking on our death. He's becoming unclean like her. 
so to speak. He's saying, I have come to take and bear away your sin, your death. Secondly, the second thing Jesus does here is that he raises her from the dead. By doing that, what he does then is, having, after becoming unclean, he reverses the uncleanness of sin and death in this little girl. He gives her new life. And immediately we are seeing pictures of what Jesus has come to do. We are beginning to understand what these miracles are about. Because this amazing miracle is pointing us to Jesus' death on the cross, where he takes on our sin. He bears our sin on the cross. He becomes unclean. God made him to be a sin who knew no sin for you and I. So that you might become the righteousness of God. And then Jesus rose, didn't he? He rose from death. He gave us new life through his resurrection. Just as he's raising this little girl here. This is meant to be a, a, a photograph pointing to the future of his work on the cross for us. Jesus is saying to all of us here, not just the little girl, if we come to faith in Jesus, we'll receive new life with God forever. The Apostle John says this in John 11, verse 25 to 26. Jesus said to her, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks us, do you believe this? Are you trusting Jesus? Have you received new life from Jesus? And the only way we can have new life in Jesus, new spiritual life, is by receiving the touch of Jesus. By faith in Jesus. We must do as Jairus has done here in this passage. Let's go back to verse 22 there as we come to an end. Verse 22. Did you notice what Jairus Jairus did? Verse 22 tells us, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. What a great picture of surrender that Jesus demands from each of us. You must truly throw yourself at Jesus' feet. That's how you have new life in Jesus. It is total surrender. Beloved, do not trust other things. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. And if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, then keep trusting this touch of Jesus in every area of your life. No matter how hopeless things look. Maybe at the moment you're facing a difficult issue, but I need shared about his aunt who, who's, who's, who's not well. Or whatever situation you might be facing. You are crying out for answers before Jesus and nothing seems to be happening. You are in the season of waiting, feeling like Jairus perhaps when he was waiting there. Well, beloved, remember the words of Jesus in verse 39. Look at verse 39 again. What does he say? He says, the child is not dead but sleeping. The child is not dead but sleeping. And you are his child in Jesus. If you are in Jesus, you are now alive. You are not dead. Your situation looks dead, you are just sleeping, so to speak. Because Jesus is still acting there. He has already given you life. There is no situation you are facing that is completely hopeless. The child is not dead but sleeping. Jesus is telling you this morning, trust him with your situation. Surrender it to him. He's already at work in your life. For his glory and for your good. Amen.